My favorite joke is always the process of teaching science is telling smaller and smaller lies. Here you on eight. Here you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome back to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm your host, Ross Orpit, and we have back with us today Dr. Nick Matzler, toxicology fellow from the Rocky Mountain Poison Center, who joined us last episode to talk about cyanide poisoning, and is back to join with us today again about talk about some other gases that are similarly related. Thanks, Ross. I'm really excited to be here. I hope your listeners are totally tired of hearing me talk, but I'm really excited to talk about these toxicities. Thanks for coming back, Nick. I don't think they are. I enjoy chatting with you each time and I have a, a blast doing these episodes with you. So I'm excited to talk about these other gases. Initially, I had reached out to you to just talk about cyanide poisoning and you said, hey, well, while we're at it, we should talk about these other gases that are kind of in the same vein. So what else do you want to talk about? Yeah. So, you know, I think a very related gas is hydrogen sulfide or H2S. And especially here in Colorado, that one becomes very important because of all our oil and gas industry that we have here. And truly any state that has a lot of oil and gas industry would have to deal with this, as well as places that have a lot of agriculture and even in big cities where you just see a lot of natural gas use. So it becomes a very important toxin. And I thought it might be nice too to talk about just some of the other gases that we have antidotes for that you might want to recognize in the field. And so I think talking about some of the warfare agents might be interesting too. Things like sarin gas uh, and others you may not be as familiar with, but like somin, taubane, as well as uh, VX gas might be kind of fun to go through, talk about signs, some of the signs and symptoms and what the pre-hospital treatment for these would be. Sounds super fun. Let's do it. Uh, start with hi hydrogen sulfide. Yeah. So like we kind of alluded to, hydrogen sulfide is found mainly as a breakdown product of bacteria. So that's why classically people associate it with like both the rotten egg smell, but also then with like sewage and things like that. And indeed we do see it in like manure, in sewage treatment areas, in manholes, in tight and closed spaces. We tend to find hydrogen sulfide that builds up in these areas. And the other big one is oil and gas industry. So a lot of people that work in the oil and gas industry near oil rigs or other things like that might have the potential to be exposed to this substance. And it's very clinically relevant for these workers. And it's even more clinically relevant for the pre-hospital worker because of sort of how people get exposed and how they're found. Talk to me more about that. So hydrogen sulfide is a rotten, smelly gas. Why do I need to know about it and worry about it on the ambulance? Yes. So there's two big reasons. One is what we call olfactory nerve paralysis, which is just a fancy word for like your nose stops working. And the other is because in some studies, up to 25% of the victims of hydrogen sulfide are actually rescuers. And so what ends up happening is that if you walk into a space that is a hundred parts per million or more of hydrogen sulfide, it causes paralysis of your olfactory nerves. So you might walk into an area and you might take a small whiff and go, huh, it kind of smells like rotten eggs. And then you might keep walking forward and be like, oh, smell gone. And you'd say, oh yeah, there's nothing else here that I'm worried about. And you just keep walking into this field scary. that is poisoned with hydrogen sulfide, even though you don't recognize it anymore from the smell. So it's very terrifying just as you point out. It's heavier than air. And so it tends to collect in spaces that are uh, lower to the ground. And so you might see your friend who's working on the job site with you, you might see them walk over to a different area and all of a sudden you see them fall over and you say, oh no, 
like my colleague just fell down. Let me go check on them. And you start running towards the area. And as you do, you might catch a whiff of that, of that rotten egg smell that disappears instantly. And then you get over to your friend and then you pass out instantly. And then along come some of your other colleagues and they notice two people down. So they go after you to try to rescue you and they pass out. And of course, this is going to be important from a pre-hospital perspective, because if you're just called to a downed party, you might see somebody down and do the natural thing, which is to try to go render aid and you might result in either your death or becoming a victim uh, yourself that needs rescuing. That canary in the coal mine. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's easy to think about these big industrial exposures, right? It's easy to think, okay, sure, I'm going to a natural gas field or I'm being called to somebody who's found down in a manhole or, you know, I'm going out to somewhere where they store a lot of manure and somebody was found down. Like in those scenarios, it should be a little bit easier to have it in the back of your mind. Like, oh yeah, that person might have been exposed to hydrogen sulfide or H2S and I should take extra precautions, like have somebody that can check a meter, wait for the fire department to show up with SCBA so they can take readings and go out there in safe gear to pick somebody up. But a more insidious version is somebody who commits suicide in their car. And so actually, unfortunately, what we saw, especially around 2008, is we saw this spree of suicides in Japan where just over 200 people died and then also some in the U.S. where hydrogen sulfide, unfortunately, is very easy to make out of household chemicals. And so you go online, you read about this gas that you only have to take one or two breaths up and it instantly kills you. So it seems like a reasonable way to commit suicide. And people read these instructions and then they will bring the chemicals into a closed space, which usually the easiest enclosed space they have access to is something like a car. So they'll go into the car They'll mix these chemicals and they're instantly die. And then you as the rescuer come up and you're like, well, this car's not even in a garage. It's just out in the middle of nowhere. It must be safe for me to open this door and try to get this patient out of the vehicle. When in reality, when you open that door, you're going to get blasted with hydrogen sulfide and, and that can potentially uh, result in your death as well. And so you have to be careful in some of these special circumstances or you may end up as a rescuer being a victim. You said 25% of these patients are rescue workers? That's right. And some of the studies that have been looked at, uh, the victims often multiply and up to 25% of them are actually just the pre-hospital rescuers that are coming trying to save people. So how can we protect ourselves? Is there anything we can do to recognize this or be on the lookout? Yeah. So it's there's some big points here. One is just keeping a really high index of suspicion. So if you're going out to a confined space where somebody was found down or a natural gas or oil mining operation, those are all places that you should just be on high alert right away. Hey, could there be a gas I need to be afraid of out here? Normally, these kinds of industrial areas, people will have special equipment to help them. So people are technically supposed to be wearing like monitors and they're supposed to be detectors to help you detect the amount of hydrogen sulfide in the air. Because again you might get that olfactory paralysis where you know you initially smell the rotten eggs, but then you don't. And so you should also keep that in mind as a second point, meaning that if you smell rotten eggs at all and then suddenly don't, you shouldn't say, okay, that means there's no gas there. You should probably just take a step back and try to think to yourself, am I walking into a place where a heavier than air substance could accumulate and might I be walking into somewhere where there's hydrogen sulfide? And the olfactory paralysis isn't going to come back right away. It's going to take you know, minutes to hours before you can smell normally again. And so you don't want to just 
go to fresh air and be like, okay, let me, let me try to sniff my way into this area. You want to make sure at that point you're calling in extra help with detectors or the fire department with SCBAs to go and get those patients for you, as opposed to putting yourself at risk. Okay. And how does it kill you? Great question. So there's kind of two big ways. The, The main way is that it acts actually very similar to cyanide. So you know, we had a, a great discussion about kind of how cyanide works in the mitochondria and how it poisons you from a respiratory perspective. That is essentially the exact same way hydrogen sulfide works. It works on that complex four in your mitochondria. It stops you from being able to produce enough energy and it gives you that cellular asphyxia that we talked about in one of the previous episodes. And so I'd refer you to that for more of a discussion on like kind of the inner workings of how that hydrogen sulfide is going to poison that mitochondria. But in general, that's the same mechanism it's going to work. The other thing is that because it's heavier than air, it displaces air. And so since it's going to displace oxygen, there simply just won't be oxygen in that environment. So you may walk into an environment and take a big breath of nothing but hydrogen sulfide. And so obviously that's going to poison your mitochondria, but also at the same time, you're now not breathing in oxygen. And so that can make you pass out as well and obviously can lead to your death. And you made it sound like this happens pretty quickly. It's extremely fast. It's considered a knockdown gas. And so it is not uncommon for people to take one to two breaths and be down as long as the concentration is high enough. So again, just like cyanide gas that we talked about uh, previously, it's all about concentration. So if there's a very low amount of hydrogen sulfide in the air, you might just smell it a little bit and move on with life and never get sick or never be harmed by it. But if there's enough in the air, even taking one breath can literally kill you or at least make you unconscious. And now you're unconscious breathing in that atmosphere and death is inevitable. Is there anything to do? Is there any surviving this? Can we help people? So yes. So if you can remove them from the environment, that is the preponderance of how you treat hydrogen sulfide exposure. So if you can get them out of the environment they're in and get them to fresh air, that is going to be one of the best treatments that you can give. Obviously placing somebody on a non-rebreather would be a really good treatment as well. We've seen that just like in cyanide, offering somebody 100% oxygen can help in terms of their symptoms. But for hydrogen sulfide, it's often rapidly fatal. And if it's not fatal, if you can bring them out of the environment, you can actually improve them. There are some antidotes we can talk about, but for the most part, it's just removal from the environment. It's not quite the same thing as cyanide, where it's going to, you know, cyanide's going to, you know, get worse and worse and worse until you treat it. With hydrogen sulfide, if you just bring them out of the environment, nine times out of 10, that's going to make them better. Like if they've already survived the environment, they probably will continue to improve. And, and in fact, there's some stories that, uh, you know, they're, they're a little bit funny to me, but maybe not funny to these folks, but it is unfortunately not uncommon in the, in the natural gas field to, to have multiple knockdowns during your career. So like some of the old timers will go out there and they will like, you know, walk somewhere that maybe they shouldn't have, they'll pass out, they'll manage to make it to safety. They'll get up and be like, well, I'll head back to work. Uh, and there's, there's some very interesting case reports that you read where these folks were knocked down two or three times in the same day, all in the same area before finally they were brought to attention. And so it's one of those gases, it it can cause some long-term harm, but for the most part, it is the short-term harm, meaning that you pass out in an area that doesn't have enough oxygen, that has too much hydrogen sulfide. And that's what ends up killing you is just being in that environment without somebody being able to pull you out. So its treatment is somewhat similar to the treatment with carbon monoxide, where it's just remove them from the environment and give them 100% oxygen. That's going to be the best thing for them. 
you're exactly right. Like that is the best first step that you can do for these people. And a lot of times you're going to see these people, you know, when you provide exactly those treatments, they're probably rapidly going to start getting better over the next minutes to hours. And, and maybe they don't need anything else outside of those treatments right there. But in case they do, there are some other options available. So what happens if we remove them from the environment, we're giving them oxygen, but they, they're still not looking any better. And maybe we should talk about what does that patient look like? What does their vital signs look like? What does their mental status look like? Are there any other physical exam findings? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's a couple of fun physical exam findings. One is that their jewelry might turn a dark color or black. And that's because when silver is exposed to hydrogen uh, sulfide, it, it creates this discoloration. And it's, it's one of the funniest things I feel like I ask people over the phone sometimes when they're like, Hey, I, uh, I just, we found this patient down they're really sick here. They are. And I say, could you please rummage through their jeans and try to find their coins? Or do they have any jewelry on them that you can look at? And if it's very discolored, that can be a sign of hydrogen sulfide. Now, I never hang my hat on that. and I never say, oh, yes, it's, oh, their silver is not dark. Let's not treat them. That's not the right idea. But it is kind of a fun finding that you might see in these folks is this discoloration of their silver jewelry or coins that they might keep in their pocket. It might help you clue you in. Which of our coins has silver? So not a lot of them truly have silver, but anything that looks like silver that you carry in your pocket might potentially be discolored, but you're exactly right. It's mostly, I think tin is, is what it's mainly made out of, but don't quote me. I, I can't remember that, but you're exactly right. There's not a lot of silver in actual coins, but if your quarters, nickels, dimes are darkly discolored, that can be a, a sign. And then certainly any jewelry that you think should be silver, uh, but appears dark or black blackened could be uh, from exposure from that standpoint. The other things you might see, so hydrogen sulfide, when it combines with moisture, becomes a little bit more acidotic, and so it can cause a lot of mucous membrane irritation. So I, I buried the lead a little bit when I said, oh yeah, like you know, you might get your smell receptors knocked out, and you keep walking forward, and you're like, oh, I don't smell anything, I feel normal. But really, probably, if you're in an environment with a lot of hydrogen sulfide, you're not going to feel normal. You're going to lose the smell component, but as you walk forward into it, you're going to be like, ah, my eyes really burn. My nose is burning. My throat is very irritated. And that irritation can clue you into things too. So you as the rescuer provider, that might help you extricate yourself before you become a victim. If you're like, okay, I don't smell it anymore, but wow, I'm like, you know, feeling very irritated everywhere. Uh, or if you see somebody that once they get pulled out, they have very injected eyes, you know, they're awake enough to complain of irritation. That might be something else that will help you. The, the other signs and symptoms just really go along with, uh, with cyanide toxicity, meaning that patients are often going to have an altered sensorium where they're going to be, you know, a depressed mental status, most likely occasionally seizures like cyanide, but really just an altered patient and then hypotensive and often bradycardic, but can be tachycardic to go along with it. And their, their vitals will resemble a sick cyanide patient as well. Bradycardia, hypotension. Exactly. And if you guys listened to our previous episode, the kind of trend of you take this initial hit and you can become transiently hypertensive and tachycardic followed by usually hypotension and tachycardia. And then finally hypotension and bradycardia. That's usually the trajectory you'll see in patients. And it just depends on when they're pulled eventually from the environment and you get to them. So you may get to them. They may already be hypotensive and bradycardic, or they might be hypotensive and tacky or hypertensive and tacky. So it depends on when you get to them, but you should watch out for those constellations of symptoms. But if they are initially hypertensive and tacky, it's okay to watch them. But once they start 
taking a nosedive and becoming hypotensive, that's when it's time to treat. Do we need to decontaminate the patient at all? Or is this really just a gaseous substance? It's mostly a gaseous substance. Uh, and so usually there's not a ton of decon that needs to be done. It does depend like people, if they're mixing chemicals, like in their car or in an enclosed space in a home to try to commit suicide, those patients may end up with some of these chemicals on them, in which case, yeah, you would need to decon them. Or if they had some kind of powder substance on them, you'd want to decon them. But for the most part, it's a gaseous substance and you, they may still smell of rotten eggs. So oftentimes people come into the emergency department, they still smell a little bit like rotten eggs, but it's not going to be at a high enough concentration usually to cause harm to you or the providers around you. Who's the patient that I pull out of the environment I give oxygen to, but they don't continue to get better? Those are the patients that have usually had a more significant exposure. So it's very interesting in studies, there's a, there's a large dose dependent response. So what they do is they measure the parts per million of hydrogen sulfide in the air, and then they correlate that with various symptoms, meaning like when can you detect it initially as rotten eggs, which is actually an extremely low concentration. Our nose is very good at detecting this, this odor. So you can smell it at a very low concentration that won't harm you. And then slowly as that concentration rises, it causes the olfactory paralysis, then the mucous membrane irritation, then the like knockdown effect. And then at a high enough concentration, which I believe is usually over a thousand parts per million, one breath kills you. Uh, and so it sort of depends on exactly how long the patient quote, like soaked in the environment for how sick they might be when they come to you. So it's hard to know hundred percent what patient's going to be sicker. You're just going to have to say, I have a high index of suspicion for hydrogen sulfide based on where I'm picking this patient up from or how they were rescued by the time I got to them. And then if they're still persistently sick, meaning you get them and they're hypotensive, tachycardic or anything like that, those are the patients you should just be empirically treating as opposed to waiting and finding out. So the patient who was maybe not exposed to that crazy high concentration that kills them immediately, but is exposed for a period of time to a lower level concentration that just makes them sicker and sicker. And they're not getting better on oxygen removal from the environment. What are we going to do to treat them? Great question. So here's where hydrogen sulfide and cyanide remain very similar, but there's one important difference. When we talked about cyanide, we talked about essentially three different options. We talked about the met hemoglobin inducers of amyl nitrite or sodium nitrite. We talked about sodium thiosulfate as a sulfur donor to help detoxify the cyanide via your own endogenous enzymes, meaning the enzymes in your body take care of cyanide and you just supply it with the building blocks to do it, which is the sodium thiosulfate or hydroxycobalamin, which is again, is going to detoxify cyanide directly and give you a little boost in your blood pressure. In the cases of hydrogen sulfide, the only antidote you, you essentially don't want to use is the sodium thiosulfate because it won't do anything for you. And it just exposes them needlessly to a drug. So you can still, the, in the older kits, you can still do sodium nitrite. You could theoretically do amyl nitrite, although it's not really been studied. It's mainly the sodium nitrite that's been studied. Again, it's the same theory. You induce methemoglobin. The methemoglobin is attractive to the hydrogen sulfide, so it comes out of the mitochondria onto the red blood cell, or you just give them hydroxycobalamin. So for hydrogen sulfide, I'm much more of a fan of just saying, if you're still sick from hydrogen sulfide once you're removed from the environment, 
just give them the hydroxycobalamin. It's the same dose as you would use for cyanide. So it's five grams over about 15 minutes. You can repeat that dose up to two more times if you think they're still sick from it. But hydroxycobalamin, I think, is going to be your mainstay here. And, and I want to couch all this is that we just have less data for hydrogen sulfide than we do for cyanide. There's been a lot more investigations into cyanide and how the antidotes work and how effective they are in all sorts of animal models as well as human models. But for hydrogen sulfide, there's just less data. So that's why I say, you know, most of the time when I get called on these people, they're in the hospital, their lactate's mildly elevated or really elevated, but their vitals are looking reasonable. They're looking more reasonable. And it's been an hour since they were pulled out. And I say, yeah, you probably don't have to do anything. But if you have them in the back of the ambulance, they're still sick and hypotensive. You should be giving hydroxycobalamin if you think hydrogen sulfide played a role. What about the patient who is dead? You arrived, was exposed to this, and is now pulseless and apneic. I mean, is there anything you can do in that scenario? Is it normal ACLS? Are they coming back? Or is it like a very poor prognosis? Unfortunately, it's a very poor prognosis, even in, in some of the studies that are like you know, they're not prospective studies. They're just looking at uh, groups of people that had hydrogen sulfide experience and, and like who lived or didn't. And, and the problem is, is that it it's pretty deadly if it killed you, because if it did kill you, you have to imagine that either like it was such a high concentration initially, or you were down in that environment for so long that you inhaled enough of it. And, and remember that hydrogen sulfide is heavier than air. So it's displacing the oxygen. So if you walk into this environment, take a big, deep breath, have no oxygen in it and get a bunch of hydrogen sulfide, that's going to kill you almost instantly. And then even if it doesn't, when you pass out and you're just laying there on the ground, all you're breathing in is hydrogen sulfide until you stop breathing. And so your last several breaths was just mainly hydrogen sulfide, no oxygen. So you're very oxygen deplete and you're very high in a very, unfortunately, very terrible cellular toxin. And, and, you know, EMS might be physically on scene 30 yards away, but you can't walk in there unless you have proper equipment. So now you're talking about waiting for the fire department to show up or somebody with an SCBA that like works with the mining company or the oil and gas company who can go and pull somebody out of that environment. And so by the time you get the patient, unfortunately, they, they may have been dead for a little bit before you even give them. But assuming the best possible scenario, meaning you receive a patient who has just died from hydrogen sulfide, you should do your standard ACLS just like you always do. But if you think this was secondary to hydrogen sulfide or you think it played a role, I would still give them hydroxycobalamin on that case. I, I don't know whether I would give them sodium nitrate in that case, but I would absolutely give them hydroxycobalamin. And the data would suggest that maybe there's a minor survival benefit to the expired patient that receives hydroxycobalamin compared to one that didn't. But that is a tricky claim for me to make. Yeah. First and foremost, keep yourself safe. You got to get the patient out, but you got to do it safely without any risk to other providers. You don't want to be become one of those 25% of victims that are a rescuer from this poisoning. And then after that, regular ACLS with the addition of hydroxycobalamin. Exactly right. I couldn't have said it better. Anything else with hydrogen sulfide? I think those are the the big tickets. Just remember that it's found in a lot of different places. For fun, some of the other places that it's found is things like pulp paper mills. So if you've ever wondered why a paper mill smells so bad, it's because of hydrogen sulfide and that rotten egg smell. Back in my home state of Oregon, there is a very famous paper mill by where I live that has such a smell. And so growing up, I guess I learned that without learning it. And so that one's near and dear to my heart. But things like uh, water treatment facilities, 
leather industry, vulcanizing rubber, rayon production, and coke from coal. Like when you produce coke to like burn at higher temperatures, that also contains hydrogen uh, sulfide. And then another one, which you know, I'm more horrified to learn as I as I've gotten older. But I I used to be a roofer when I was in high school and early college, and uh, I hated doing the the tar roofs with the uh, with the hot tar that we were doing, where you mop it out. That is just riddled with hydrogen sulfide. And so, if you ever get like a roofer that's found down, and again, these don't have to be like your whole body was in a confined space. This can be like, hey, they told the new guy to go like throw another brick of tar into the tar pit and they got too much of a face full of it and went down real fast, that might be what you get called out to. So you're like, well, this is an open air environment. We're up on a building. We don't think it's, you know, heavier than air up here. You know, that person could still be hydrogen sulfide toxic from it. So keep these big things in mind. There's other things like sulfur springs, volcanoes, caves. There's unfortunately been deaths where like people are found dead in a hot springs. And it's because there's a big bubble of hydrogen sulfide that came up and got them. And so be aware of some of these areas that may contain it because only by keeping a high index of suspicion when you're being toned out to these areas will keep you safe and potentially lead to a better outcome for the patient because you recognize, hey, I might be able to use this antidote. In all other realms, removal from the environment, great ACLS, and then potentially the addition of hydroxycobalamin if you're worried at all. And again, I want to make a plug, just like in the cyanide episode, if you are ever on the fence about giving hydroxycobalamin, you should already be giving it. And I give you permission to do that. And please refer anybody that's angry back to me. <laughs> Thank you. All right. You also wanted to talk about chemical warfare agents. And I think, you know, one of the most commonly known one is sarin gas. It, you know, was used in some subway attacks in Japan. And so talk to us a little bit about these. Yeah. And so, there, I mean, there's a lot of different chemical gases out there that have been used for warfare agents, but I think these, like the, the agents that are most similar to sarin are very interesting to talk about because we've actually seen them used in the real world, unfortunately, and all their symptoms and treatments are going to run together. And so I think it's, it's a good one to talk about and to alert people to, and there's some lessons to be learned. So as you brought up in 1995, there was the subway attacks by the Amshariko cult where they released sarin gas in these subways uh, in Japan and caused, unfortunately, a lot of injuries across the board. There were several deaths, but more it took out a lot of people. And a lot of the people that it took out were providers. And part of the reason for that is that people would be contaminated by the sarin gas. They weren't appropriately deconned before they got to the hospital. So now they're in the back of your ambulance, not deconned, and then they come to the hospital, not deconned. So unfortunately, a lot of the paramedics, nurses, and doctors became symptomatic. I don't recall that a lot of them died, if any of them did, but a lot of them became symptomatic to the point where now they require treatment, or at the very least, they can no longer render aid to the hundreds of people that were affected by this gas attack. And so again, it's a plug to don't become a victim yourself so that you can continue to provide excellent care to your patients. So different to hydrogen sulfide, where decon is actually going to be a bigger issue here. You're exactly right. So all the rest of these gases that we're going to talk about, to spoiler alert, it's going to be sarin gas, somin, taubane, and then VX gas. All these are going to be very similar to one another, and they're only going to differ by one thing that, that we call aging, which we'll talk about here in a minute. 
but they're all going to produce similar symptoms and they're all going to have the same risks and treatments. And one of those risks is, of course, going to be risks to providers. They're all potentially people that are going to need decon. What do these gases do? How do they kill or how do they make patients sick? So these gases look very similar to organophosphate toxicities, and they're kind of in the same realm of chemical structure. And what I mean by that is these are all agents that are going to affect the cholinesterase enzyme. So the cholinesterase enzyme is responsible for breaking down acetylcholine. And of course, you guys may remember that acetylcholine is a common neurotransmitter that the body uses, and it's predominantly a neurotransmitter of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so under normal circumstances, remember the parasympathetic nervous system is like the rest and digest uh, of your nervous system, you know, as opposed to the sympathetic fight or flight, this kind of slows most things down. It is what helps you pee. It's what makes your pupil small. It what makes you salivate. It's what makes you sweat. It's what helps you digest food. So acetylcholine, when your neurotransmitters are using it, it sends out, you know, a little bolus of acetylcholine. It affects the nerves. And then this cholinesterase enzyme breaks it down and kind of resets everything. So now your nerve can fire again and it can release more acetylcholine and and have action on the nerve terminal. The problem is that if you break the cholinesterase enzyme, you no longer break down acetylcholine. So now your nerves under normal circumstances, you know, they're dumping out a little bit of acetylcholine and it has a little bit of action, but now it's not being broken down. And your nerves don't know that. They have no feedback mechanism to know that. So they just say, oh, hey, I'm supposed to fire again. So they fire again. They release a little more acetylcholine. But all that acetylcholine from the previous firing is still there. And now you're just kind of continuing to add more and more acetylcholine and it's not being broken down. And when you add too much acetylcholine that isn't being dealt with, now is when you become toxic and see all the problems associated with it. And so uh, you guys might be familiar with the acronym SLUDGE that describes the symptoms that you commonly see uh, with these kinds of folks. But I like to think about them as folks that are just, they are oozing secretions from every orifice and they're, and they're very bradycardic and they have very small pupils. And so these are people that are going to be salivating. They're going to have bronchorrhea. They're going to have bronchospasm where their lungs are starting to like not allow you to bring in air anymore. They're going to be sweating like crazy. They're going to be urinating themselves. They're going to be defecating themselves and their pupils are going to be so small. It's going to be literally difficult for them to see. Then they're going to have like, you know, this kind of dimmed vision or blurry vision where they not might not even be able to recognize you as a rescuer. And they may also be very encephalopathic if it affects the brain. And the bradycardia, like when we talk about the constellation of these symptoms, these sludgy symptoms that we see, there's uh, another mnemonic that we use, which is the killer bees. So what actually kills you in all this? Because like you might be saying, yeah, well, sweating a lot sounds terrible, you know, and having small pupils. Yep. That, that doesn't sound like a great day either, but ultimately those things aren't going to kill you. Right. What we have to watch out for is the killer bees and the killer bees are bradycardia, bronchorrhea, bronchospasm. Those are the three ways that these agents, these quote nerve agents kill you is by making your heart rate too slow or making you unable to breathe because of the amount of secretions that build up in there or how tight those airways are. And all of these gases that you mentioned kind of work through similar mechanisms. That's right. All these gases that we just talked about, which is again, sarin, somon, tabane, and uh, VX gas, they all do the same thing. They all stop the acetylcholinesterase enzyme from working, meaning you have too much acetylcholine and it gives you all these symptoms that we just described. And is the treatment same for each of them? Luckily it is. So 
The treatment for all of these, as you guys may have guessed, is, is just going to be, well, if I have too much acetylcholine, how can I block it? Well, you guys have an amazing antidote on the rig, which is atropine. So you guys remember that atropine, you know, we often think about it in terms of symptomatic bradycardia, uh, even symptomatic bradycardia that has nothing to do with toxin exposure, because all it does is it's a parasympathoolytic, meaning that it just breaks the parasympathetic nervous system and gets rid of it for a second. So if you are too bradycardic from, for any other reason, if you give atropine, all you're doing is you're blocking the action of acetylcholine. So even though the parasympathetic nervous system is dumping out a little bit of acetylcholine, you're blocking that and that will naturally increase your heart rate. Well, if you think about a disease state like these nerve agents, these chemical warfare agents that produce bradycardia by too much acetylcholine, well, shoot, if I can just block that acetylcholine, I fix you. And that's exactly what atropine does. So it doesn't fix the enzyme. The acetylcholinesterase enzyme is still broken. So it's not breaking down acetylcholine. So there's still too much acetylcholine accumulated in the synaptic cleft, but you introduce something like atropine that blocks the action of acetylcholine. So it no longer matters. It doesn't matter that there's too much acetylcholine in the nerve terminal because you're blocking the action of it and you can rapidly make somebody better and save their life by giving them atropine. How much atropine are we talking about? Is this like your standard ACLS atropine or... That's a great question. So usually the standard dose recommended for these nerve agents is two milligrams right off the bat. There is a range though. And what I mean is that, so, you know, maybe at some point we'll talk about organophosphate toxicity, which is very similar to these nerve agents, but in organic phosphate toxicity, oftentimes we find we need much more atropine than we do in these nerve agents. So some people advocate for starting with four milligrams of atropine in somebody who's organophosphate toxic. But if we think it's from one of these gases, then oftentimes you can get away with just two milligrams to start with and see what the response is. But you should be prepared and ready to redose and redose as much as you need to in order to get somebody stable. In the sarin gas attacks in Japan, people often needed less than 20 to 24 milligrams in their first day of treatment. So they ultimately didn't need a ton. They needed a pretty reasonable amount and did need to be redosed, but they still needed, you know, only like 20 milligrams at the end of the day. Some people with organic phosphate toxicity need like 200 milligrams in their first day to keep them safe. And so in the pre-hospital setting, like you can start atropine drips and do all this fancy stuff, but I don't want you to worry about any of that. I just want you to continue to dose atropine until you see clinical effect. And the clinical effect you're looking for is safety from the killer bees. So you're looking for somebody to no longer be severely bradycardic to the point it's impacting their hemodynamics. And you're looking to dry their respiratory secretions and their bronchospasm. Now, oftentimes people will become tachycardic as you're treating them. And sometimes people will say, oh, now that your heart rate's 120, I can stop giving you atropine because that's good enough response. And that unfortunately is not necessarily correct. And what I mean by that is that what we see sometimes is you will make somebody tachycardic, but they still have severe bronchorrhea or bronchospasm. So if they're still having a lot of secretions, coughing a lot, not able to take good breaths, I don't care that they're tachycardic, you should still be giving them atropine. And so I would start with the two milligrams if you suspect anybody that's sick, two milligrams if you give it to a healthy person that's not affected by a toxin at all should still not cause them severe harm. It should absolutely make them tachycardic and probably a little bit unhappy for a few uh, a few hours, but it's not going to harm them at the end of the day to the point of like death or severe outcome. So if you think you should give it, again, you should give it. 
And you should start with two milligrams and then you should closely monitor that patient and continue to give them slugs of atropine until you've, you know, made them no longer so bradycardic affect their blood pressure and you've dried out their respiratory secretions and prevented bronchospasm. So again, we're looking for the patient who has the history of exposure with the abnormal killer vital signs of bradycardia causing hypotension and the bronchospasms, bronchorrhea causing hypoxic respiratory failure. And we're going to treat with atropine until we see reversal of all the killers. So reversal of the bradycardia and reversal of the hypoxic respiratory failure. How often are you redosing the atropine to see effect? And are you doing the two milligrams each time or what dose are you using? Great question. So after the initial two milligrams, it sort of becomes more art than science, meaning that you should give them whatever dose you think they need at that point. And what I mean by that is if you gave them two milligrams and they looked perfect after that, and then 20 minutes later, they start getting sick again, not unreasonable to give them another two milligrams. If you think, ah, I'm going to try a milligram because ah, yeah, they're starting to have a little bit more secretions, but they're otherwise looking fine. Sure. Give them one milligram and see what it, see what it does to them. After that initial dose, you can sort of titrate however you think works best. I probably wouldn't give them slugs of more than two to four milligrams unless you've really proven to yourself, hey, I gave this person like two milligrams. It made them better for a few seconds. And then they got real sick again. I gave them another two. I didn't quite see the same effect. I gave them another two. Then I saw effect. Sure. Maybe you're going to start dosing them four milligrams in a slug or something like that. But the ultimate goal is just whatever it takes to achieve safety from those three killers that we talked about. And oftentimes people will, will call this atropinization, meaning that like you've given them so much atropine, you see the effects uh, of what you've done there. Typically what we'll do in the hospital for these is we will take the total amount of atropine needed to get them safe. So let's say it's like 20 milligrams or so. And then we'll give them a third or half as much of that dose in a drip form per hour. Uh, and then see how they do and kind of slowly titrate it based on that. And so, you know, there's kind of some of these like uh, theoretical ways we can approach it, but still, even in the hospital, I'm just going to look at the patient. I'm going to give them a dose that I pick. And if it didn't work, I'm going to give them more. If it worked great, I'm going to say, great, that's about the bolus dose I needed. So start with two milligrams because it's been demonstrated that not only is that safe and healthy people, if you're wrong, but then if you're right, it should reverse, especially with these agents, meaning the, the nerve agent gases that we're talking about. Again, organophosphates is its own beast and oftentimes needs more atropine. But for these nerve agents, it oftentimes takes less. So I'd give them that initial two, and then it's going to be a little bit more of an art than a science in terms of how much more they need from there. So the doses we're given here are more than our ACLS doses, but not as much as our organophosphate doses. And then in the acute emergent setting, we're just going to dose two milligrams, two to four milligrams based on patient symptoms, just redose based on those killer Bs. And then later in the hospital to bridge them to metabolization, they may put them on a drip, but not necessarily anything exactly. we need to worry about. That's exactly right. And how often you redose them is going to be patient dependent. So, you know, if you gave them two milligrams and they look great, great. Just keep watching them while you're driving them in. And if they all of a sudden get worse five minutes later, great, give them more. If they get worse 20 minutes later, give them more. And so it's really going to be up to the patient how much you give them. And so there's not a, an exact interval I can give you because if you give them two milligrams and it did nothing and they're still really bradycardic and, you know, they're just 
secreting from everywhere, I would just dumpster more atropine into them. Fair enough. <laughs> and how long does this often last? I mean, is it common for people to go on drips for 24 hours or longer? For these nerve agents, it's not as common. So the nerve agents tend to be like, fortunately, a little bit better than the organophosphates, meaning that these people often don't end up on like drips for days. Usually it's like they needed some atropine for the first 24 hours and then they get better after that. And part of that is going to depend on the exact agent and something that we'd call aging, uh, which we'll talk about here in a second when we talk about one of the potential other antidotes, which is pralidoxime or Tupam, as you might know it. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about 2PAM. So I, I was going to bring that up because I know and you're saying this is similar organophosphate. I don't have enough atropine on the bus to keep somebody safe from organophosphate. So 2PAM is what I do have. Does this work for these nerve agents too? Yes. And so 2PAM does theoretically work for these nerve agents and has been demonstrated in animal studies. And I think in some human studies as well to work, but it all depends on something that we call aging. So Really, you know, my favorite joke is always the process of teaching science is telling smaller and smaller lies. So like I lied to you a little bit with like initially how the mechanism works, meaning that like, yes, it does cause acetylcholinesterase inhibition, meaning it stops that enzyme from metabolizing acetylcholine. But there's an extra part I left out, which is something called aging. So when the like, let's say somin gas, for example, so let's say you're exposed to somon, which is one of the worst ones you can in my mind. And it's for this reason. What happens is that what's when that somon enters your bloodstream, it is going to find that acetylcholinesterase enzyme that it loves, and it's going to attach to it, and it's going to block it. It's going to stop it from working. So instantly, it stops it from working, and that's a bummer because that can harm you right there. But over the next several minutes, something called aging might happen. And what aging is is when part of the molecule of somon leaves. It it disappears. It gets hydrolyzed off. It, it goes away. So like essentially what's left over is acetylcholinesterase bound to a smaller version of somon. Like part of somon has, has fallen off of it. And when part of this molecule falls off, when part of the somon falls off, we now consider this, this enzyme aged. And what that means is just that we can no longer reverse it, period. So that means that acetylcholinesterase enzyme is truly dead until the body makes a new one. Oftentimes, with depending on the agent and antidote we give, sometimes we can regenerate the enzyme. So if you give pralidoxime, otherwise known as 2PAM, if you give that early enough in some of these cases of poisoning, you can actually help rescue the enzyme, meaning you can regenerate right there, meaning you can go and you can pull the salmon right off the enzyme, and now the acetylcholinesterase works just as it did before, and you've cured the patient, theoretically, or you've fixed them enough where they can, uh, their own enzyme can, can degrade the acetylcholine like it was, and you should stop having symptoms. The issue is, is that the reason I picked Somon as the first one to talk about is that's the shortest aging half-life, which means within like five minutes, all that Somon is aged. You can't rescue them anymore. So now if you've been exposed to Somon and you didn't get 2PAM in the first five minutes, which almost nobody is going to, that means they're committed now to be atropine is the only thing that's going to help them and they might need atropine for days. But you contrast that with VX gas. VX gas has an aging half-life of 48 hours, which means you have a whole two days to give them pralidoxime or 2PAM and you can still rescue that enzyme, meaning it can go in and pull the VX off the enzyme and now the enzyme works again and everything is fine and, it can, and you can metabolize things like normal. 
So 2PAM is an important drug to give as early as possible, especially when you don't know what the agent is. And in all reality, you're not going to know what the agent is, right? Like what you're going to know is that you were called to a mass casualty incident in which many people are salivating, urinating, sweating with myotic pupils and are bradycardic and dying. And so they have all this constellation of organic phosphate or uh, nerve agent attack. That's all you're going to know. And you're going to see these patients and you're going to treat them with atropine because that's what's truly going to improve them, make them better. And at the same time, you're probably going to give them 2PAM or pralidoxime to try to regenerate these enzymes. But you won't know that day if it's sarin. You know, it'll take us probably days to figure out what agent was used in real life in these kinds of gas attacks. So if it was something like VX or sarin, we have a lot more time. Like sarin has several hours before ages. So we have a lot more time to administer 2PAM. But if it was something unfortunate like SOMON, then, then we only have minutes to administer, which means you know, we could give patients all the 2PAM in the world, but all of them are going to present outside of five minutes from the attack, meaning it's not going to rescue anybody. So 2PAM works by essentially dissociating whatever the molecule is off the enzyme and rescuing or saving that enzyme from becoming essentially inactive and useless forever. Exactly right. Because when the enzyme is inactive and useless forever, you're literally waiting for the body to produce a brand new copy of that enzyme. And the body will do that, but it takes several days before that's going to happen. And so if we can rescue the enzyme that exists, we get you better faster, which is better for you in many ways, get you out of the hospital faster, prevents long-term morbidity and mortality from different problems that can arise from you know needing atropine for that many days. And so it's something that can potentially be very beneficial and it's certainly in the cases of nerve agents, there's better, better data to say it's beneficial to give 2PAM uh, and then it rescues more people. In the organic phosphates, those like the evidence for 2PAM there is a little bit more mixed, meaning even in some cases, maybe it even hurt patients a little bit to give 2PAM or at least didn't help that much that maybe maybe giving it to everybody doesn't necessarily make sense. Although that's a, that's a debate I don't want to get into today, but for the nerve agents, giving 2PAM early would be good. And in fact, the military, the way they put together their kits is they often, people may have heard of like the Mark one auto injectors or things like that. These kits oftentimes either come with two auto injectors, one that is atropine two milligrams and one that is pralidoxime 600 milligrams. And people are instructed to give both auto injectors themselves if they feel like they like you know they've been attacked. There's another auto injector that's actually a combination injector that has both the two PAM and the atropine in one. So it's just one stick and you're done. And hopefully you've rescued yourself. So the military has these, and and indeed, like you know, if you were acutely attacked even with SOMON, you might not, that might be the one scenario where you get yourself pralidoxime fast enough. Because since it's it's in your pocket, you know when to use it. You might give it within the first couple of minutes, and that might actually prevent the aging of these. But if it's in like the pre-hospital setting, it's up to you guys to give it. Then depending on the agent, you might not know. But again, since we'll never know in that first day, whether it's sarin, whether it's VX, whether it's SOMON, you should just be giving these medications up front to try to keep somebody as safe as possible. The caveat to all of this is I don't want you to give 2PAM alone and no atropine. Because even though it like it seems reasonable that you're like, well, hey, if I just regenerate the enzyme, the enzyme will start working. It'll fix all these problems. That's not totally wrong. But the problem is that it, it doesn't rescue patients acutely. 
So if you give it to them, yes, you're starting to regenerate those enzymes, but they're going to die before they regenerate enough to be back on track. So you need to give them the atropine. So if, if you're ever sweating between the two antidotes, atropine is always the answer. I don't care if you bring somebody to me and they haven't gotten 2PAM, that does not matter. Atropine should be what you focus on. So I want the takeaway to be give them atropine, give them enough atropine to, to get them to a spot they're safe. And if you have 2PAM, very reasonable to give it in the pre-hospital setting for one of these nerve agent attacks. If you don't have it, I don't want you to sweat about it. It doesn't matter. We'll we'll either give it or we won't in the hospital, but the atropine is what's going to save their life. Atropine is going to save their life. The 2PAM is going to keep them alive, essentially. So Perfect. Atropine is yeah. the priority and then give 2PAM after that. Exactly. Because like the 2PAM might be the difference between a couple of days in the hospital and one day in the hospital. But at the end of the day, they're going to be alive regardless, as long as you gave them that atropine. Good to know. Uh, you mentioned VX gas. VX, uh, if I remember correctly, an evil genius tried to <laughs> blow up a rock and Nick Cage saved everybody. So I should just call Nick Cage to save uh, this person's life if I experienced this. That's right. I, you may get hate mail for your plot summary there, which is uh, fairly poor, uh, I would say, as a fan myself. But you're exactly right. Uh, that was and the very famous scene of him injecting atropine directly into his heart at the very end to save himself from VX. Please don't inject somebody directly into the heart with the atropine. Uh, just go ahead and give it through a regular IV. Uh, the other interesting thing about VX is like, you know, in the movies, like they literally showed people's like skin and gloves melting off with that. That's not true. That's not <laughs> happening with VX. Uh, it's just the symptoms we described. But but one of the important reasons to bring it up is actually VX gas. And, and I'm going to put a big caveat here that I don't know a lot about the military. So if I get any of this wrong, I'm very, very sorry. But the way it's described in our textbooks is as an area of denial weapon. So what they tell me they use this for is VX actually comes as like a very sticky liquid. And it's, it's actually usually not as aerosolized as some of these other products. And what they do is, or what I've been told they do, is they put it in these large areas and it just sticks on the ground and it survives in the environment for like days and weeks. And so like if you cover a big area with it, if any soldiers try to move into that area, then they're going to start getting sick and symptomatic because it's on the ground and it's everywhere. So it's not actually as gaseous at room temperature as one might think. You have to purposely try to aerosolize VX versus some of these other weapons like sarin. It is more gaseous at room temperature. And so it's easier to aerosolize those kinds of things to distribute in a wider variety. The only reason I bring that up is very early you asked about decontamination. And that's why I want to bring it up is because if somebody's truly attacked with VX, it's going to be like a sticky syrup that's on them. And it's going to be difficult for you to decon them. And if you get it on you, obviously you're going to get sick as well. And so these are the patients that are much more important to make sure you've deconned them appropriately and to make sure that like, you know, you've thoroughly cleaned off their skin before you put them in the back of the ambulance or you bring them to the hospital. And these are going to be tricky, right? Because like somebody covered in VX or sarin, like they need treatment. You have to get them atropine or they die. So these might be people that need to be treated while you're deconning them to make sure they survive the decon process and then they can be safely brought to the hospital. Wow. Terrifying, fascinating, but hopefully we never see it, but good to know at the end of the day, because you can truly save somebody's life if you understand these things. Thanks so much, Nick. Is there anything else or summary you want to give us? No, I think that's the big point. Like, again, I just want to harp on, if you think somebody needs an antidote in the back of your ambulance, please give it. 
because I don't want you to wrestle with self-doubt during your transport and say, ah, maybe they need it. Maybe they don't. If you're wrestling with it, that means they need it. You should give it. I am never going to be angry if you gave an antidote that turned out to be incorrect or not needed. I'm never going to be upset about that because if you think you need it, you need to give it because the alternative is the patient dies and then you come to the hospital and feel real bad that this person died during transport. So please, please, please give antidotes. If you're wrestling with the decision, err on the side of caution, just give the darn stuff and we'll sort it out on the back. It's great advice. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. It's always happy to be here. I'm so sorry I punched your mic, man. I hope I didn't do any damage to it. Uh,